Welcome to another episode of the Web3 show. Uh, as always, I'm privileged to bring the Wizards of Web3. Uh, I've got Q in the room. We we seem to be missing uh, another key component. I know the last I heard from your guy in Tradfi, he had fled Europe uh, and left me behind to to fight the war for him. He, he uh, I don't know, um, might have gone, might have gone to Norway, might have gone to Portugal. He said something about an ayahuasca retreat or, or something. I don't know. Um, but I hope, uh, <laughs> um, there we go. I think, okay. You I can, think he, hit you a, can... he hit a level of teleportation on his ayahuasca retreats. <laughs> yeah. And Q, Q, you, uh, you pulled him out, right? Oh, I got him straight he's... out of the, the, the third dimension there. <laughs> he's found his way. He's found his way to the sunny shores of South Africa for a little break, and is uh, teaming up with Q. So we're we're doing a bit of an experiment tonight. Uh, two Hey-o! people on one phone. <laughs> there he is. Brilliant. There he is. Welcome, your guy in Tradfi. How does it feel to be in? Re- remarkable. Lovely. Thank you. Luke, Luke, are you there? I think we lost uh, the host of the show. Um, but yeah, welcome to to our listeners. And yeah, I'm not good at doing these intros. <laughs> this is Priscilla's strong point. Yeah, we've, we've just lost the host. Um, Am I like back? Can you hear me? When yeah. I, I feel like Andre Cronier <laughs> having to front my own projects now in ditch. <laughs> Luca. Am I back? Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's very delayed, man. Oh, oh, this is a this has been a great start to the show, uh, but we'll <laughs> we'll we'll make it work. Q, let's dive into the market update straight, and uh, instead of wasting everyone's time now with the we've gotten the small talk over, what is going on with the market? We're two weeks in to the Russia and Ukraine conflict. Give us a rundown. The markets, from my perspective at least, have been all over the place. So give us some alpha. What is happening in the markets? Yeah, well, just jumping into into the charts here a little bit, what we what we're noticing is we're in a bit of a, a dangerous phase where we're kind of ranging between critical levels and are ultimately in a fifty fifty danger zone, where we've got a chance of going up or we've got a perfectly equal chance of going down. Um, so what I like to call this area is a no trade zone until we have confirmed direction of the charts. So what we did see on Monday last week was this uncharacteristic pump from Bitcoin, um, which was supposedly, as we covered in that last uh, podcast episode, talking about the massive increase in whale wallets of Bitcoin, it was kind of uh, directed that Russians were purchasing spot spot purchasing Bitcoin um, and ultimately led to a drastic single candle pump on the daily to, you know, the, the mid 40s, where it retested the forty five to forty six thousand dollar zone which, as we've discussed previously, is quite a critical level for us to reclaim for the bulls to take control of the market. But ultimately, it was a very unsustainable pump. The RSI is across the board topped, and we needed to see a pullback. And obviously, we got rejected at that level, and we're hovering around the 38 to 39K zone. Um, And a lot of people are running for the hills, you know, but what most don't realize is we're sitting at last week's weekly open, um, we kind of on track with Bitcoin where it needs to be. And the fact is we're putting in higher lows. Um, you know, if we compare this to the, the May, July dip last year, 
um, you know, we're forming a descending triangle where we're putting in lower lows and lower highs the whole way through before we had a pump. Here, what we're doing is we're sitting on macro trend, but ultimately putting in those higher lows. Um, and it's something that we want to see. But right now, while Bitcoin tries to confirm its direction, um, you know, in my mind, it's not a tradable area until Bitcoin at least reclaims on the daily the 40k region. Um, until then, we've got a very strong likelihood of coming down to retest the macro supports at 35, 36k. And if we lose that, doing the swing low to the institutional defense zone in the low 30s. As we know, sailors' average buy is sitting around $31,000 at the moment. So we know that those low 30 levels have institutional incentive to defend. Um, but one thing that I want to bring a lot of attention to is the dominance charts. So the two particular dominance charts is the Bitcoin and USDT dominance. Bitcoin dominance pretty much tells us how much um, of the market is, in, is controlled by Bitcoin's price action. And USDT tom dominance tells us basically a loose indicator of confidence in the market. When there's a period of uncertainty, people usually uh, flee to the dollar. Um, and when there's a period of certainty, people usually flood back into Bitcoin. Um, but either way, in both scenarios, altcoins tend to bleed. So what we have been seeing is Bitcoin dominance has been rising, but almost falling, forming a, ra a rising wedge right now, which is inherently a bearish pattern. So what we're expecting to see here is a Bitcoin breakout at some point where dominance will ultimately get rejected on macro trends. Um, before coming back down to test those low 40% regions when altcoins will have their time to shine. Um, that being said, the market is in favor of Bitcoin right now. And just to punch into the USDT dominance charts, we're getting a consistent rise on the daily dominance following a very specific trend. But what we had last week was put in a lower high on the USDT dominance, signaling a rough trend reversal. And right now we're testing that high again. So we could be forming a basic ascending triangle here, which, as we know, is bullish in a bull market, but neutral in a bear market. And right now we are in a bear market. So this could break either way. And ultimately, while we test these regions for the USDT dominance, which is around 4.7%, if we lose macro trend at 4.36%, I'm expecting a very similar breakout to what we saw last year, July, before we had the Bitcoin rally. Um, so once we see break of macro trend, that's when I'm going to start aping back into the markets with confidence that we're going to be going up because we're going to get a signal from the lack of dollars being held in the market and the flood back into Bitcoin. So right now, short term, we are looking bearish. Medium term to long term, we're looking pretty bullish. Nice. And obviously, John, it goes without saying we, we have that extra layer of um, you know increased uncertainty black swan uh, black swan events sort of things with the whole russia ukraine conflict and just sort of the 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 place we are in the world it's been a crazy two weeks and you know as as a, a bunch of people have been saying over the past week we're very much at the beginning you know not even not even the first innings of you know economic sanctions things happening in in that and i wanted to ask um what else have you been seeing on the ground, uh, maybe between Twitter sentiment, any other sort of key market fundamentals, any interesting data to share? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, if we just if we just look at what's going on in the market, TED Talks Macro made a pretty interesting tweet earlier on today. Uh, this is what the tweet, tweet read. 
if Bitcoin were to test $20,000, the last three months have been the perfect conditions for it to do so. Will that war, central bank tightening, crypto regulation headwinds, equity markets and confirmed bear territory, yet Bitcoin has failed to test the lows of 2021. And this kind of highlights the macro intrinsic strength that's been shown in the crypto, for the crypto market at the moment. We've got all these sanctions, you know, being imposed on innocent people in Russia, in Ukraine, in various regions where, you know, it's highlighting the flaws of a Web2 narrative where people can just be deplatformed or censored without their will, whether they're part of a movement or not. And this is highlighting the, the strength of a censorship resistant currency or economic system. And that's ultimately what cryptocurrency is. And I think that's largely attributing to us holding these very critical levels and not coming back down to that 20K retest of the 2017 all-time highs, which a lot of people are calling for. And if I have to say the general market is in a lot of fear right now, we've got the short-long ratio being in favor of shorts. We've got most Twitter sentiment being quite bearish. And we've got the fear and greed indicator pointing extreme fear as i last checked last night i will be honest i haven't checked that update today maybe maybe just to add on to that why why is retail trading usually so ineffective right i think i think one of the core reasons is that retail traders are generally reactive whereas the market is forward looking so so i think what this ted talks macro tweet is really telling us is you know this is not the time to price it in like all of these factors which are depressing markets like the reason we're at the bottom here right now is because they have been accounted for right so i think you know the time to react uh is long gone and really (laughs) as hard as it is you know i think this is probably one of the times we'll look back on uh as as a good buy uh opportunity that that's my bias i think and it's a really hard thing to do to change your perspective, to 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 not be reactive. And I think obviously, you know, we've covered in previous podcasts the prevalence of kind of these influences guiding trading volumes, right? And, and that whole process is reactive. You know, when you're breaking from that, you've implemented your strategy, you're acting on it, and you're shifting from reactive trading to kind of forward-looking, um, forward-looking trading. Yeah, well, I mean, just just to build on that as well, I mean, if we just zoom out macro here, you know, the Dow Jones in the 1970s printed out a very similar pattern where we had almost a double top. And we came down to test the swing lows of that double top. And there was massive fear in the market. And ultimately, what it ended up being was a fake out and just ended up being a macro accumulation phase. And Bitcoin is printing a very similar factor. And while I'm not a big fan of fractals, we're kind of moving in a very strong channel here. And what would make sense is the bottom being in these mid to low 30K regions and ultimately us to just continue in this range bound macro accumulation before we break out. And I think, you know, while we stay in this range, once we break above that 69, 70K region, I think we're going to see a huge breakout move. And this pattern has been well, pretty much copy pasted throughout Bitcoin's history and various other traditional assets as well. So, you know, we, we're, we're in a very interesting phase in the market right now. There's a lot of different perspectives and things being thrown around. But I definitely do believe that a macro bottom is very close to being in, if not has already been put in in that 33K zone. And, and I mean, John says that is that kind of backed by the fundamentals. 
I mean, I think right. largely what we're seeing in the world today is, you know, unnecessary censorship from a lot of people and people being excluded from financial systems, which is basic human rights, in my opinion. And I think that intrinsic value of a censorship resistant currency is is fundamentally being backed right now. You know, while, while I don't think that the, the technology we interact with today is going to be the technology we interact with in 10 years, I think the narrative of a censorship resistant financial economy is the future. And crypto is the closest to us. And John, so you've you've basically given your first take on the on the on our first topic without me even introducing it. So well well done for for uh, seeing into the future. Um, just to just to give context to what John's is saying, and um, and yeah, first of all, thanks thanks Q for the great market update as always. These are going to become even more key as we progress through uh, these uncharted waters. Um, but yeah, circling back to what. John T mentioned you mentioned obviously you know innocent people getting deplatformed with these sanctions and and everything happening and sort of gave your take there on how you feel about it. We saw some really interesting news break last week around Wednesday Thursday um, concerning MetaMask, Infura, and OpenSea. And while the audience I'm, I have no doubt will know who MetaMask and OpenSea are, probably less people know who Infura is. Um, and basically, Infura is a Web3 backend and infrastructure as a service provider that offers a range of services and tools for blockchain developers. So essentially, they allow you to connect your Web3 dApp to the Ethereum blockchain, and they're a centralized company. And basically, the, the news that, that broke um, really shockingly to a lot of uh, the crypto community was that MetaMask was actually found to have blocked um, MetaMask and Infura actually blocked people um, in Venezuela. Some users were trying to access MetaMask to view their funds, and an error message popped up. They couldn't they couldn't see the contents of their wallet, and they couldn't do anything with uh, with MetaMask. And this was later pointed to an Infura um, a sort of configuration error, where it was found out as well that MetaMask by default, plugs into Infura to actually access the Ethereum blockchain. So, and then on the other side of the coin was OpenSea blocking people um, in certain jurisdictions, uh, most notably Iran, where creators and collectors alike were unable to view and access their NFTs or actually look at their own collections. And this is we we've touched on this before through the web3 debate um you know moxie ceo of Sig and founder of signal had a brilliant article summarizing you know and pointing picking holes in in web3 and i thought maybe just to bring bring you in again um well john's already gave his take maybe bring you bring you in luca um what's your take on this and how worried should should we be about you know, how decentralized crypto is actually currently? It, it's a good question. I mean, I think it just highlights again the value that, you know, our base layer technologies have, right? Like I think Bitcoin again shines as a decentralized store of value kind of alternative. I mean, at the end of the day, everyday users will favor convenience. MetaMask is convenient, and it's, 
it's it's a fact of uh, our, our basic human nature <laughs> that 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 things are set up the way they are. I mean, things tend to centralize, you know. So I think I think you you you've got to differentiate almost and say, okay, MetaMask, Ethereum, what is this? You know, maybe you look at Bitcoin and you take more of a commodity perspective, maybe a currency perspective. Um, I think overall we shouldn't be worried. Uh, you should just be aware of what you're doing. I think fundamentally, um, you know, this idea of decentralization is thrown around, this idea of Web3, WACNI, there are a million examples. You know, at the end of the day, most users are ignorant. I think that's a fair assumption. And we're acting surprised that this happened. You know, whereas um, it's, it's, it's been relatively, and we covered the whole issue of NFTs, right, centralization, basically. Um, and yeah, so, so to me, it's not a surprise. And I think overall, we shouldn't, we, at the same time, we shouldn't be worried about it, right? Like it's, uh, yeah. Just, 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 just adding to Luca's point on ignorance there, you know, what most people don't realize when it comes to decentralized wallets or more colloquially hot wallets is they're basically just a user interface that allows you to interact with a private key. But ultimately, the private key is what, is, is what your proof of ownership of funds are. So what most don't realize is if your MetaMask is not working due to some centralized error like through Infura, you could just import that private key to XDeFi, Mu wallets, Trust wallets, or any other Ethereum-compatible wallets and access your funds and use them. That is a fascinating point. I did not even know that until you said that to me. Like, if my MetaMask wallet had been frozen, I would not have known what to do. <laughs> so, so how I learned that was when I first got into crypto, Mu wallets, which is my Ether wallet created by a crazy Russian developer, you know, when he created Mu wallets and ultimately I was storing all my funds on Mu. And a friend of mine who develops in the blockchain space said to me that, you know, what happens if this developer dies and or something happens to them that they can no longer update the wallets and bugs, you know, you know, he basically got me onto MetaMask. And when I opened up my MetaMask accounts and had to send everything from Mu wallet to MetaMask, I kind of sat there with these ridiculous fees. And at that point in time, it was like, $10 a fee, you know, I mean, in hindsight, compared to today, that's, you know, peanuts. But back then, you know, this was before Ethereum was taking off, really. And I then, you know, just decided, you know what, let's just import the private key into MetaMask, and there popped up all my tokens. Um, and it just basically shows the beauty of, yes, you know, as Moxie highlighted, there's a lot of cross-chain, well, cross-compatibility with centralized entities, but what most don't realize is that there's an inherent beauty of decentralization, and that is the blockchain. So what you're saying, Johns, is actually, although MetaMask stopped working in Argentina, MetaMask itself has no control over user funds. No. Right? Like, everyone still held their ETH. It was just that the interface they were using to interact with the ETH blockchain exactly. wasn't working. Well, basically, your private key is, look at it like an arrow. It just points to a particular spot on the blockchain where yeah, your funds exactly. are stored. And that, that's your private key. The most important thing in crypto is your private key. The arguments for C5 versus DeFi is not your key, not your coins. Like the narrative is there. If you own the private key, it doesn't matter what interface you use. The funds are usable. Um, and this is where most don't realize that they can just import these seed phrases into other wallet providers and access funds. And again, 
you know, a lot of the Infura issues was based on the IP address of the user. A very quick and simple fix to that is a VPN. You know, what most don't realize is there's a lot of decentralized, well, not necessarily decentralized with VPNs, but there's a lot of ways around, you know, these issues with centralized control in a decentralized network, you know, and, and people just don't often research that or understand the space enough to know that there are workarounds. And, you know, we're in an infancy phase of this beautiful technology that's bound to be you know, vastly more complex and, and, you know, have reached its full potential over the next decades. But right now, you need to be savvy. You need to figure out ways around it and try and understand as much as you can about the tech and understanding the basic nature of a private key will allow so many people to avoid centralized issues. And John's, the counterpoint to that is, though, surely we still should be worried because if... MetaMask as a company, if Infura as a company, who are both centrally owned by consensus, and I, I found out, I found this out by digging into everything more um, a bit over this weekend. Obviously, having two forefronts of the decentralized web, in inverted commas, centrally owned by consensus, and having J.P. Morgan and have being a, a stakeholder in the ultimate parent company. That I guess that that's just a bit scary to people. And the counterpoint is that if MetaMask or if Infura has configurations where they can essentially shut off your, your access to the API or whatever it is to, um, you know, depending on your IP address or, or whatever it may be, what more can they do? And is this something we maybe we aren't aware of? Can, is there, can they essentially financially de-platform someone? Do they have the power to do that? I don't know. But I guess that's the worry. Uh, no, I don't but, know if but, you guys have a take on that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the question really here is how, how far can they kind of go down, right? Like basically, can they block an individual person? I think it's, it's just not like scalable blocking individual people. Right. Like, you know, you like John said, you know, you can use a VPN, etc. Fundamentally, we didn't we didn't sign up for privacy. We signed up for permission in this network, you know, so fair enough. The C5 companies are gathering our data. But the point is and remains that you don't need to pass credit checks. You you don't need to ask anyone. You can start participating in the web three financial ecosystem. And I think that is the core value proposition. I think, it, I think it's easy to conflate these things. At the end of the day, it all comes back down to this core idea of permissionless networks. So if permissionless networks are supported by centralized entities, I don't think that's a problem because it's not scalable for these centralized entities to hone in, in on individual people, basically. And you've the, another core idea is you've got low switching costs, right? So if you've got one network which is kind of causing a lot of problems in, in one locality, you've got low switching costs over decentralized exchanges. You can swap over to different infrastructure, different tokens. Um, low switching costs, permissionless networks um, is the core idea, not privacy. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's easy to conflate these, uh, these things. And I guess the it's uh, obviously just you know I I think it's it's tough to find uh, you know a one side 
um, you know, sort of find a side on this debate. There's elements of both, which I sort of, I, I find myself going back and forth with every point you guys make. So coming down the middle, I obviously just wanted to lay that counterpoint back to you guys, but, you know, also coming down the, coming down the middle again, as John T said, it comes down to those private keys. Is MetaMask or Infura or Consensus or whoever the centralized company is, are they able to actually obtain those private keys? If they aren't, then there's no chance of them ever actually finding or obtaining the rights to your place on the Ethereum blockchain, i.e. your funds. And that's another question um, you know, I, I don't have the answer to if they have that ability. I guess that that's what scares people when something like this comes out. And what, what people see on the internet is the issues people have and, you know, just the, the sort of the API issues people have. Um, well, I mean, let, let's just, let's just look at this from a pure security point of view. You know, a centralized exchange is only as safe as the people that store the private key to the vaults that store the funds for the centralized exchange, not your keys, not your coins. You're trusting a third party to look after your funds. A uh, hot wallet is only as safe as your browser is. If you've got an, if you don't have antivirus, if you don't have VPN, someone's hacked your laptop. Doesn't matter where your private keys are stored; they can install a keylogger, unlock your password through, your, unlock the wallet through your browser, and take your private keys. You know, at the end of the day, the most secure form of anything is cold storage, which is something stored offline. So, if this issue with metamask of you know could they freeze funds could they access private keys could they do this stuff you know again you're only as safe as your computer security your cyber security and that comes down to like what is your risk profile in 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 storing and interacting with the network and the best thing to do to mitigate anything as a lot of you know big players in the in the crypto space have said is if you store funds on a cold store, like some form of cold storage, like a ledger, you can leave a country and just memorize 12 to 24 words and access those funds of any device, of any application, anywhere in the world. And you know that because it's completely offline, there is no concern of anyone else taking those private keys. Yeah, what's the gold standard again, Johns? It's like if you have a prior, if you have cold storage, you can basically have multiple different kinds of hot wallets and you can basically depending on your need only do transfers from your cold storage to the respective hot wallet exactly but but you can also multi-sig those hot wallets where you use the hot wallet as your interface but the private key is stored on cold storage so, uh, so then there's no limitation though so if metamask isn't working you just send your funds from your ledger to a different hot wallet. Exactly. Or am I simplifying that too No, much? That, that is the basis of it. That's how it functions. And that's why cold storage and ledgers were created to ensure, you know, your keys, your funds. And that's, that's the base narrative here when it comes to crossing centralized entities with decentralized entities is, you know, we want to interact with a permissionless, trustless society where we don't have to rely on third parties or, you know, centralized control to tell us what, what the rules are, dictate what the rules of a protocol are. We're here to interact with an inclusive financial system and whether people can access private keys or not, that's just up to what your security levels are. You know, do you care? If not, use centralized exchanges. If you do care and you're really concerned about it, everything should be on cold storage. You know, you can multi-sig all your hot wallets through a cold storage device 
and interact with any compatible wallet to the network you want to interact with through your ledger, which is never online and no one can hack it. So it basically boils down to what you want out of the space, what your security measures are going to be and what kind of risk profile you want to hold and whether you actually care about pseudonymity or privacy or what all these other narratives that are thrown around the blockchain. And that's literally the value proposition of crypto, right? And Web3 is that you have complete self-sovereignty sovereignty over your wealth and your income, whatever it may be. And you need to accept the risks and the opportunities that that presents uh, to to you. And yeah, brilliantly put. And I think it's something security until someone gets hacked or loses, does something, it makes a mistake or, you know, loses their money security can easily be sort of ignored and neglected. So great point, John. Um, to close out the section before we dive into Ukraine, um, Brian Armstrong tweeted, um, everyone deserves access to financial services unless it's against the law. CZ from Binance and the CEO of Kraken also took their stance where they said, we're not banning um, you know, Russian, we're not putting a blanket ban over Russian users um, for, for Binance and Kraken. And they said we, we, we may, you know, ban certain users depending on, on uh, what sanction gets put out. What's your guys' take on that? Um, would you, if you were the CEO of your own crypto exchange, where would you stand and how would you think about, you know, sort of where to stand? Would you follow regulators very closely and say okay you know if if the u.s sanction list is on iran but you know whatever it may be i need to sank i need to ban every single user i have who's from iran and essentially through my kyc get that data ban them or are you more sort of open open to everything and and sort of in line essentially with the true you know the original values aligned with crypto like CZ has done from Binance? Where do you guys stand on that? Well, I, th I think it, it boils down to the base facts in crypto is everyone's here to make money currently. And if you look at centralized exchanges, their biggest income or revenue is generated from trading fees. So if it means that they need to sanction one country to access another country's bigger population of trading to generate more income for themselves, they will do it. True to decentralization, you know, the narrative is, fuck the government, fuck sanctions. You know, we're going to allow anyone and everyone to use the entity. But when you sign up to a centralized exchange, you're basically opening up a bank account and you should understand that you can be deplatformed based on sanctions. And if that is a concern, you shouldn't be using centralized exchanges. So I think, I think CZ did reply to that saying that, you know, he wants to stay true to decentralization and ultimately is not going to conform to the sanctions. But how long is it before, you know, the U.S. or other Western regions ban Binance in their areas and then create it, make it, make it illegal and possible for their citizens to access those centralized exchanges? And I think it's in the best interest of a centralized exchange to conform to regulation in regions to allow bigger access to a bigger population to promote global adoption. Because let's be honest, centralized exchanges are the biggest onboarding mechanism due to their fiat on-ramps. So I think it is quite a dilemma, but at the end of the day, most of crypto is profit-driven. And I think that's the, the way most centralized exchanges will lean. And for example, Kraken, 
you know, the founder of Kraken said in that tweet when during the Canada protest that they will conform to regulation. But he said, if you're Canadian, take your funds off of our exchange, put it into decentralized exchanges. So, Johns, you would uh, you would take that uh, that route if you uh, had your own crypto exchange from the well, sounds of it. Um, <laughs> I think I think the route that I would take is, you know, at the end of the day, we want to onboard as many people into crypto. So if banning one region allows me to access the rest of the population of the world, then that's a sacrifice or an opportunity cost that one must take. Yeah, brilliantly put. And I think the key takeaway from the segment is that decentralization is still alive and well. Uh, we, I think we've done a good job of cutting through the noise a bit from that of the things that have arisen. Although it is a concern and things are, there'll always be centralization in such early stages it's still alive and well where you aren't completely limited. There are workarounds as John T brilliantly put it earlier. Now I had a great way of introducing this next segment from a quote from Chris Dixon um, about how uh, web three is the internet um, owned by builders and users orchestrated by tokens. But John, you gave me a better way of segueing into it, into the next topic by saying everyone's in crypto to make money. And that was perfectly shown by a, if I just pull it up here, um, a June analytics t- uh, chart showing the donations to <laughs> to the Ukraine <laughs> pre-airdrop announcement and post-airdrop announcement. And I saw this great meme which said um, before, it basically goes vertical. It says before the airdrop announcement, people who care. And then when it spikes, it says people who care about money. So basically, if you haven't heard or I'm sure you've, you, I'm sure people have been seeing the Ukraine has been gathering um, many donations through crypto. They've now garnered around fifty million dollars of crypto donations between Polkadot, between Dogecoin, between Bitcoin, between ETH, and even last Shiba week Inu. even <laughs> Shiba Inu as well. Um, and basically, last week Wednesday. The Ukraine's Twitter, which has been on fire since Russia invaded, which is probably not the not the best thing to to be focusing on, but they have been they have been on fire on Twitter. Um, last week, Wednesday, uh, announced that an airdrop was confirmed. Snapshot will be taken tomorrow on March third at six p.m. Kiev time. Once that announcement was taken, there was a massive spike beyond any any proportions of tiny micro 0.01 and 0.001 ETH uh, donations to the Ukraine in order to maximize, you know, the opportunities to, to get uh, an, a potential airdrop. And these people are called as a, called, um, what are they called? Airdrop farmers or token farmers or something uh, that I discovered. The next day, the airdrop was off, but then... <laughs> Then they announced that they would be rewarding people with NFTs. So I, I want to get your guys' takes on this. There's not really a, a key question that I want to ask at the start. What is what are your guys' takes on all of this? Because I have a I have a I have an opinion. Um, Luca, what what's your thoughts? Uh, and, and I know how you feel about NFTs. So it's going to be interesting to get, to get your thoughts on this. Well, I, I thought they went even further and they said they would sell you NFTs. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Yes, true, true. Yeah, so so you you, uh, I mean, there were memes floating around that 
you know, you got rugged. I think at the end of the day, you know, it was good marketing. Well, Luca, sorry, just sorry to butt in, but the the, the vice president of uh, Ukraine, um, who was announcing the NFTs, he said, "We will announce NFTs to support Ukrainian armed forces soon." In his tweet, uh, that's that's a quote. So, being quite ambiguous on whether they're going to sell you or reward you. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I guess we'll see. Um, I mean, I think it's I think it's incredible if you think about the fact that people are dying on the ground in trenches as we speak. Um, houses are being bombed, um, families destroyed, and we've got a basically a corporate Twitter <laughs> for, from Ukraine uh, raising money during a war um, to fund the army. Um, so aside from the fact that we had a bunch of opportunists who were hoping for an airdrop, um, we really are just living in crazy times, right? Like, I mean, people are dying at the moment, and we've got a, an, an official Ukraine Twitter account. So I guess you could take it, <laughs> you could take it two ways. You know, how serious is the crisis really? Um, if if what we're seeing is you know is is real, um, yeah, it's. <laughs> the world is a meme, and and speaking of yeah, of a rug, like. the, right, like and, exactly. I yeah. think someone should tell the Ukraine that NFTs are on a bear market, though. <laughs> and well, well, they're going to resurrect it. They're going to resurrect the market. Is obviously their thought process. Um, and and speaking of I want rugs, them to buy Metaverse land in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just wait, sandbox, I'm coming for you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but speaking speaking of um. Speaking of rugs as well, is uh, is the fact that, you know, obviously they, they've taken $50 million worth of crypto donations. And I saw a stat the other day that they've only actually withdrawn from the wallet. People have been tracking the wallet on Etherscan. They've only withdrawn $15 million, which is, you know, only 30% or less than half of, of that total donations amount. And utilize that towards actually. Obviously, we don't know the main, uh, you know, you know the main uh, ways that that's been that the funds have been utilized. But essentially, I guess a question for me came up of you know what is actually their intent here? Are they are they saving up? I mean, if things are as desperate as they as they would think, surely they'd be withdrawing all of the funds as they came in to fund their war effort. Um, and maybe well, that's I mean, also a combination of them being armed by the Germans uh, and, you know, other Western countries. I did, uh, read, but... I did read yesterday, there was an article, don't quote me on it, it was a brief read, um, basically saying that a lot of uh, agencies or organizations that are supporting the military action in the Ukraine are setting up infrastructure to accept direct payments in crypto rather than the Ukrainian government having to fiat off-ramp and then pay. So there could just be a delay. But again, don't quote me on this. It was a quick read. I mean, that would be a sensible take, though. I mean, to what extent, you know, are governments generally capable of accepting and distributing crypto? I think that's, I think that's a fair point. Um, and, and you could kind of extend that and say, to what extent are NGOs capable of accepting and deploying crypto? Right? Like, at the moment, the system relies on fiat on and off ramps. Um, you know, so that that's definitely, I think, a fair point. And you, you can't really expect the government to immediately deploy the funds. And another question I have, you know, I don't know much about the Ukraine, but how much is $50 million really? 
Yes, relative right, to a, GDP it's, it's and all of that. Exactly. It's quite a big country. Um, you know, maybe a portion of these funds go into the re-election campaign once uh, things settle down. We don't know, right? There are no checks and balances. GDP of Ukraine in 2020 was over $150 billion. So $50 million in 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 terms of that ocean is quite a drop is is not quite a drop but i mean it's it's a it's pretty much a drop in the ocean and, and i mean it's it's probably you know part of the information war age that we're in right if you dominate social media if you dominate media narratives more broadly you are winning brilliantly put and ukraine is essentially recruiting crypto twitter to go viral and you know build that build their narrative around you know Crypto is the movement of freedom and financial freedom and sovereignty and direct that against Putin essentially as the aggressor who wants to take over the world. And it's a great marketing campaign in that sense. So they, they that makes sense. So well, it's, it's remarkable. Like it's like they were ready for it. I mean, yeah. And look, Luke, Luca guys, there's another take on this is that if, you know, this could be a moment in time where people look back and, and, look back at Ukraine as the first country to actually pull off a, a, an impactful and meaningful crypto strategy. And I thought that, you know, when they canceled the airdrop, I was like, could that actually be a missed opportunity? I thought for a country creating some sort of token that is, you know, at least commensurate with your currency or is an offshoot of your currency, isn't that more optimal than, than launching an I, NFT I project? I see where you're going, Luca. That's actually such an interesting point. Like they could have basically launched a parallel currency rather than doing going the CBDC route. Just uh, when your country's in a time of stress and you've got a kind of uh, an enemy united against you, you you drop another <laughs> another token. No, but exactly. And I'm and I'm no, just I'm just looking up. Um, you know the. Ukraine, Ukraine doesn't have, you know, they don't actually use euros. They, I, I can't pronounce their their currency, but they have their own their own currency, which is extremely weak compared to the dollar, and it's only gotten weaker, obviously, with the conflict. So, <laughs> looking in that context, you you've got a country that is sort of, you know, has has an has an aggressive nation on on the east side of it, is not part of NATO. Doesn't it doesn't use the euro is sort of you know does doesn't have the biggest gdp and in terms of the economic value potential that crypto has to offer just obviously using this as a thought exercise i thought i mean great opportunity to just you know decouple yourself from from the world not use and go against you know anti cbdc like you're saying <laughs> create your own you know offshoot currency um, and I don't know what that means for the world. I don't know what that means for Ukraine. Would it be a flop? Um, but maybe a missed opportunity. I mean, Luca, may, may, maybe to some extent, you know, this this was kind of a test run, and soon we're going to be seeing institutional currencies. I mean, that could really be a result of this, right? I mean, if you think of like uh, global NGOs trying to combat climate change. You know, if they had a currency, you could basically mint off the website by paying whatever, you know, $5 for a token. So the total, so the total kind of circulating supply of this token is basically how many have been minted by contributors to this cause. 
know, it could be an incredible vehicle for funding. I mean, I think, I think I think that route, but with NFTs, will be a lot more appealing. Wasn't it one of the governments? I think it's Korea. I can't remember South or North Korea are launching an NFT campaign to appeal to younger voters for voting for the political power. Um, and I think while a currency will be a good parallel avenue for revenue, I think NFTs receiving actual art in exchange for contribution would go a lot further in terms of value for users. Look, I guess, I guess what, John, what we have value, to... What we, value would a UN token actually have? Yeah, I mean, look, we have to differentiate between what use case are we looking at? Are we, you know, because I guess fundamentally we were talking about two different use cases. NFT, obviously receiving an NFT as something meaningful or something to show that you contributed to a cause. Whereas I guess Luca and I, correct me if I'm wrong, Luca, going down the route of creating essentially an ecosystem through your token that can be used as a funding vehicle. And you can extrapolate that down into, you know, the Ukraine creating their own micro economy ecosystem with, within crypto, within Europe, within the world. Um, and I don't know how how deep that rabbit hole goes. Um, yeah, I think I think that kind of complicates things, though. Like, while that's it's a sound idea, and like it, you know, it's got a lot of like benefits to it. Like, let's take this back to when we were like seventeen, eighteen, and we used to go to music festivals. You know, you would wear your armband for how many months after those music festivals, or you'll hold onto those armbands to signal that you were at that festival, or you know, some form of ticket or something as a memory of being a part of something bigger than yourself. You know, and I think, you know, that in line with the, the fundamental technology of NFTs, there's a brilliant crossover there. You know, as, as someone who relies on a digital identity, you want to show that you're a part of things. You want to show that you're a part of a community, not just an online presence. And I think, you know, running that roots through an NFT network rather than a token ecosystem could hold a lot more value, especially to the younger generations, which is actually capturing a lot of net worth share now. I think that's a fascinating point, John. It's like utility versus representation. Like, what's the goal? Um, well, I guess all NFTs representation then becoming utility in the long term, depending on what the Ukraine or whoever does the project essentially, you know, makes of it. And it would be fascinating to, to me to see what, I don't know if you guys have any ideas what on earth a country would do with an NFT project, but you know, there has to be some roadmap. What do you, I don't know if you guys can even think of anything because well, I, I, don't, I, don't I certainly can't. Be a roadmap. I don't think there needs to be utility. I think like Luca just said, you know, utility versus representation. Like, let's Fair be enough. honest, what is the utility of a CryptoPunk besides its community? And what was the utility when people bought CryptoPunks before it had a community? Same as Bored Apes. You know, the, these projects, their utility develops based on the community that buys them, not necessarily because the project has developed a utility. I think all NFTs to date, currently, with the way we interact with the technology, is more about your representation of being a part of something. It's a digital flex. It's your digital ticket, your access pass, you know. Um, and I think representation is more important to people in crypto than anything else because majority of their lives are spent in a digital realm. And they want to have something to show for it in the reality. So what better way to do that than an image or a profile picture or a JPEG or something that shows that they're part of something bigger? Guys, should we just should we just take a moonshot and just think how crazy would it actually be if we just take the music festival example, if you collected NFTs from your attendance at music festivals and you could look back 20 years 
and you have this collection of NFTs from all your music festivals, which, which was your entry ticket. And like even thinking just like moonshining further, like imagine you had a social media platform, um, some future social media platform, and you had like a reel of your favorite events as NFTs that you could just cycle through. And I like think match up yeah. with people based on these events. Like, it's so cool to think ahead. Like imagine custom skins. You know, you you <laughs> playing Fortnite or whatever as some 13-year-old kid that's made money from streaming on Twitch. And for donating to the Ukraine, you receive a custom skin in Fortnite that you can run around dressed as the Ukrainian flag. Like That's I, far out. <laughs> yeah, but, but there's, that's there's great. So, that's great. There's so many applications. And this is where the technology behind NFTs is so brilliant. But the way we interact with them are flawed. And I yep. think over the years, that's largely going to be resolved. But the basis technology here is why NFTs exist. Where does that flaw come from? I think we said it early on the pod uh, that because we're at the fledgling stage of, uh, <laughs> of this ecosystem, uh, it's about the money. I think the moment it stops being about the money, um, we're going to see these things unfurl into a beast. Yeah. And this is the lens I was just looking at this whole Ukraine thing is, you know, from the money, I think people, you know, trying to get in, in on the snapshot, trying to get the airdrop. And then, you know, now with the NFT, what is that going to look like? Are people essentially going to be holding a bag from a sovereign state? Like, you know what I mean? So, yeah, but obviously looking, you know, we've, I think we've done a good thing of looking past that, looking at the, you know, the North star of what it actually means in the broader sense of things. And if, if the theories of composability, of interoperability, of you know everything that NFTs promise comes forth, that that could be a great thing. Um, and I think that's a pretty good good place to end it, um, John. So I think we need a feed, uh, or well, you need a feed for next week at least, because I know your guy in Tradfire is going to still be with you. Feed him a couple of whiskeys for that one as well. I like his energy. I like uh, the ideas and I can deal with a bit of slurring at the end. It's all good. We're about, <laughs> we about half a bottle of Jamison Select Reserve in right now. <laughs> oh, listen, I want to be, uh, I think that bottle needs to be done by uh, by next week. Um, I'll, I'll save you a tart for seller. For it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. Just, just wait for the Ayahuasca episode <laughs> when we're in Portugal on the, <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the yoga retreat. It's going to be spiritual. I'm yeah, and, that, and, that, and, and this is just a this is just a warning uh, to the audience. When that does happen, all three of us crammed around one phone, shouting at each other. Uh, we we do have tentative plans to meet each other for our for our unofficial. Web three show summit in Portugal. Out season will finally be in the room with us. Oh <laughs> uh, yes, we're meeting with Satoshi. Satoshi will be present. <laughs> right, boys. Thanks for a great uh, episode. As always, loads of fun, uh, loads of good topics discussed, um, and we will see everyone for episode eighteen. We're nearly at twenty. Can't I can't believe we've made it this far. Um, and again, thanks to everyone, uh, Scott, Michael, and Michael for joining us in the room. Uh, as always, part of the furniture every week with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, joining us on call-in. And uh, we will speak to everyone next week uh, from myself and the Wizards. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>